0: Father, we're gracious and grateful and thankful that you've given us your word and we look to you to help us in every way, to feed us and to strengthen us, to allow us to see and understand and know your ways. Have mercy, Father, this morning and minister grace to us and help us to understand repentance, for we ask this in Christ. Amen. Well, this morning, instead of plowing ahead in the verses that followed, that we looked at last week, I'm going to pause a little bit, back up, and focus on a particular aspect that we covered that I think needs a little bit more time. Because uh, because of the, the many situations I think that we find ourselves, I know I find myself in, the situations you're going to find yourself in, even in your own life and heart, there's often a question uh, in regard to repentance. What does repentance really look like? And I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but if you've ever tried to walk with somebody and walk them out of sin and, and tried to help them before, sometimes you're confused. Sometimes you're not exactly sure. What does repentance look like? And I think it's an important enough issue, even in our own lives, to say, what does it look like when we're repenting? And because in our own lives and the lives of others, whenever we're We're asked to or called to repent, I think we can assume that we all know exactly what that means and just move on. Yet I found even in my own life that I often need to wrestle with this and ask that question, what does it look like? What does it look like in our lives to repent? What does it look like when we're trying to help somebody in their particular situation and we call them to repentance? What does that look like? And I think this particular text helps us out a lot not in all the details, but it surely guides us in many ways that we need to understand, <clears throat> as I pointed out last week. the raw lexical definition of repentance is pretty simple; it simply means this: to turn to turn but yet there 's more to it than that as we look in the Bible, we look at what 's called what repentance um, being is and what it, men and women are being called to and what they're doing, as we look at all the different aspects of it, there's more to it. It's sure it's simply to say it's a turning, but there's more to understand than simply that. I think that there are, this morning I just, I've drawn out four particular components of repentance that are, that are absolutely necessary, foundational. If one is to truly repent in a biblical fashion, what does that look like? And two of them, the first two that we're going to look at, have to do with issues of the heart. The second two have to do with practical issues that you can see with your eyes. And so to begin with, this is the first fundamental thing. So ask the question, what does repentance look like? Well, if there's going to be true biblical repentance, this is what's necessary. A person must see themselves as a sinner before God. That's easily stated. Let me explain what I mean. In this particular situation with John and what he's calling them to do, the only reason why anyone would go down to the water and be baptized was because they saw themselves as a guilty, dirty sinner before God. In that particular culture, in that particular setting, that's the only reason they would do it. Of course, the text doesn't say it, does it? Do you read that anywhere? You don't read it anywhere? Yeah, this is how I saw myself. But it's assumed because it's the only thing you could be thinking. It's the only way you could understand yourself if you were to head down to the waters and be baptized. It's proclaimed actually by the people's actions. This is why the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes would not go down to be baptized. Because they saw themselves as righteous. They didn't need that. Being baptized was a declaration, an understanding that I am unclean, I sin, I am dirty, and I need to be washed, and I need to be forgiven. They saw themselves as clean, pure, and upright. They didn't need to be baptized by John. This, was, this particular act of being baptized was a humbling act done in broad daylight before everybody to see. It would be like hanging a sign out that said, if you are filthy, wretched, a sinner, and you need to be washed from your sins, then come on down to be baptized. That's basically what John was doing. He was declaring to the people their sins and calling them to repentance. And in that action, by the fact that they would walk down to the Jordan and be washed by him was a declaration to everybody. They had to have understood themselves to be fundamentally somebody who has sinned before God and was unclean. In that particular cultural setting, there was no being baptized because it was cool, or it was the thing to do. Culturally, you're amongst a very pious group of people. Israel saw themselves as the people of God. They saw themselves as the children of God. They understood themselves as that. And in that particular time, they saw themselves as righteous, which was evident, clearly evident, in the religious leaders of the day. Where did you think their righteousness came from? They were confident. Their righteousness came from the fact that they were children of Abraham. They were God's children. So they were pretty confident in that. In that particular culture, for you to go down there was a profession and a confession before everyone else that you saw yourself in a particular light and you saw yourself as a sinner. With us today, we don't have a cultural component that that puts a stigma on anyone particularly being baptized like in that that day we don 't uh, we actually have a different kind of cultural setting in most christian circles it's it 's pretty hip it 's pretty legit it 's pretty cool to what to confess yourself a sinner in all in our cultural setting if you actually saw yourself as righteous. You're kind of, you're looked down upon. That's kind of, nobody wants to identify themselves over there. It's, we're actually in the ac- opposite cultural setting. So it's hard for us to understand. In that cultural setting, those people actually saw themselves as righteous, and then they had these people identifying themselves as sinful. Can you, can you see the connection or, the, or the, the discrepancy between their culture and ours? because even in our in our can you imagine what it's like for someone to step forward against the cultural grain and can declare themselves to be opposite what everybody else believes that's the stigma going on that's these people truly understood they were they were sinful before god do you know what's interesting is that even though we're quick to confess with our mouths that we are Sinners, right? That we sin. What's interesting, and what often calls our bluff, is when we're confronted with sin. Because humble, broken people, if you're confronted for your sin, you know, we don't quickly... humble, broken person actually will receive it and say, you know what? You don't even know the half of it. (laughs) It's way worse than you think. I'm just glad you don't understand. You don't get... a." You don't understand my thoughts. You don't understand what goes on in me. And you don't understand that I'm way worse than that. But we often are quick, are we not, to justify ourselves. We get angry and we get irritated. When's the last time you were confronted by somebody and you didn't react in some self-justifying way? I'll tell you, the only time you're able to receive rebuke, receive correction, is when you have a proper understanding of yourself. You have to see yourself, and you have to be broken over your own sin. You have to see yourself as, I am one who sins. And they probably don't even get it half right. And the fact that we self-justify, and the fact that we defend, and the fact that we, we want to stand up for ourselves, you know what it does? It exposes us that we're not nearly as broken and humble as we think we are. We're like to we confess we are. We're not nearly uh, as repentant as we like to claim. Because understanding that we sin and understanding that I, I, am, I, am a, I am a man in my flesh who has thoughts, says things, and does things that are contrary to God's ways, have a deep understanding of that, is a humbling state. It's a state of humility that allows you to confess, allows you to, to realize, allows you to acknowledge, I don't have it all together. I do sin. I do. and and so and in that state it allows you to be confronted. So one of the things we have to understand is that biblical repentance has a fundamental premise to it. You first of all, if you see yourself as righteous at all, you're not ready to repent. You've really fundamentally got to believe and truly believe that I am in need of grace. That I truly am one who sins against God. That, I, I, it, that you don't know the half of it. So even though we've had plenty of refinement through life, even though we know how to behave ourselves in public, we all know our issues So we should really just be, we have to begin by being honest with ourselves, honest before God, and that's what starts repentance. And the next thing that we'll note is that you have to have that understanding, and from that understanding needs to lead to this part. This is what also has to happen in the heart. There has to be a conviction, a conviction over the wrong that has been done. And now that word is very important for us to understand. This is the invisible part that isn't explicitly stated again in this text. But it has to be there, or else there will be no move in a particular direction. You know, here, I'm going to tell a story in the Old Testament that reflects something that distinguishes emotion from conviction. Do you realize that people can be fearful and not convicted? People can be remorseful, and not convicted, people can have big old crocodile tears and, and, and show all kinds of emotion, but not have the conviction that leads to repentance. And we have to discern. This is where discernment starts to come, even in our own lives and seeing it in others. Conviction is fundamental. Now, I'm going to relate this story. And, and as I do, watch and listen to the emotional reactions that are going, taking place and, and see if you're seeing conviction anywhere that leads to repentance. This is a story taken out of Je- Jeremiah 36, and here's how it's stated starting in verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, uh, during this year, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and a Judah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all of the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way. So that they may hear of what I intend to do them and do what? Turn, right? That word, that's repent. Repent of their evil way. That I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So then Jeremiah called Barak, the son of Neriah, and Barak wrote on a scroll, at the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord. And the reason he does this, as he goes on to say, is that Jeremiah has been kicked out of the temple courts. He isn't allowed to go there anymore. They don't like what he says. So Jeremiah dictates to Barak what the Lord told him about the house of Israel. So he wrote it all down, and Barak was to go into the temple and read it to them. So he says, it should be read there. And he says, it shall be read also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord. And that everyone will turn from his evil way, for great is the anger and the wrath of the Lord has pronounced against his people. So, he goes on to say, in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, very particular when this happens, all the people of Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities to Judah, to Jerusalem, proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Pretty good religious thing to do, right? Proclaiming a fast before the Lord. They're going to seek the Lord. They're going to pray and proclaim a fast. So they're all together. And then, in the hearing of the people, Barak reads the words from Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. And so when he reads out the dictation of what the Lord is going to do to them when Micaiah the son of Jeremiah son of Shaphan heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll he went down to the king's house into the secretary's chamber and all the officials were sitting there and Micaiah told them all the words that he had heard when Barak read the scroll in the hearing of the people then all the officials sent Jehudi to say to Barak take in your hand the scroll that you read in the hearing of the people and come So Barak and the son took the scroll, and he listened to them, and he went, and he was going to have him read it to the king. So he says, sit down and read it. So Barak read it to them. These are all the officials now, and he didn't read it at this particular moment to the king. And when they heard all the words, they turned to one another in fear. And they said to Barak, we must report all these words to the king. Go and hide. You and Jeremiah, let no one know who you are, because they what they went to do is went and prepared the king to get him ready to hear these words of judgment. Now, did you note how they responded? They heard these words, and they trembled. They were fearful. Oh, no. So they went to the court of the king, and it was in the ninth month, and the king was sitting in his winter house, and there was a fire burning, in the fire pot before him. And as Jehudi read the three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words were afraid, nor did they tear their garments, which is an expression of what they would do then. They would take sackcloth and ashes, rip their garments and lay on them in sign of repentance and humility before God. But even when El- Elathan and, Deli- and Deliah and Jemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. Now, all the officials responded one way. And what was that way? They, they responded out of fear to what they heard about the, what the Lord was going to do. And then the king, Jehoiakim, does, he acts in arrogance, he defies the Lord, he doesn't care about any of it. It doesn't bother him one bit. Emotionally, two different responses, but ultimately, the same response. We have no indication whatsoever in any way, shape, or form that anybody or any of the people repented or turned from their sin. Emotionally, it started off quite different. Emotionally, this one, on the one hand, the officials were full of fear. They were trembling, and they, and, and they thought they ought to do something. You know, this is very important. This particular passage is important because what it helps us to do is understand that emotion and repentance are not the same thing. Having a feeling, having an emotion, having even, even fear. Or it could be a different emotion. It could be the emotion of, of tears, sadness. But it's not the same as repentance. Clearly, it was only, in this particular case, a temporary fear that they had. It wasn't a conviction. It wasn't a conviction that to, led to repentance. It's important that we understand that repentance isn't just an admission that you have sinned, and then there's a little bit of fear that something, some judgment could come as a result. It has to be a conviction that what you have done is seriously wrong, it deserves judgment, and you need forgiveness, a deep-down conviction. As John 16.8 tells us, this isn't something that you or I can stir up. It says, when the Spirit comes, He will convict. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And it's this conviction that your sin was evil, and because of it that you deserve judgment, that leads you to turn in repentance. If there's no conviction from the Spirit, if there's no deep settling in the heart and an understanding of, of Of what you've done before God, if that is not there, no matter how much emotion might be there, there will be no walking to repentance. Now, this leads me to the second two parts of this, because that's really what has to happen inside of the person by the Spirit. They have to understand who they are before God and see themselves truly as a sinner. Second of all, there needs to be a deep conviction that what they've done is wrong, And what they've done needs to be changed. They need to turn. They need to to get forgiveness. That conviction in their heart that they need to make things right, that they need to turn, has to be settled in. And And then it will lead to these two manifestations that we clearly need to see. First of all, confession. Confession of the sin to God, offended parties, and also trusted friends. In this case with John back in Luke chapter 3, once again, we don't hear verbal confessions, do we? But we see, we see confessions made. And how do we see that? By the very fact that they walked down to the water to be baptized. They are confessing before the crowds, as I just stated earlier, that they have sinned and they're unclean. They confess in verse 10, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? If by the very statement of saying, asking, what should I do? I'm, I'm, they're, they're declaring before everybody that I am guilty. I'm guilty. Now I need to know what I need to do to change, to repent. Let me know. The baptism itself makes a confession. And it very well could be, we don't know this for, for sure, but it very well could be that they went down to John, and they confessed their sins. He might even have asked them, what is it you're repenting of? What, how is it that you've sinned? And they would confess their sins to him and he would baptize them. We don't know that for sure. It very well could be the case. And the reason why we could say that is because actually that was the, the job of a priest, the j- priest who offered a sacrifice. In Leviticus, he's told to confess the sins of the people of Israel as he lays his hands on the sacrifice. Leviticus 26 talks about God cleansing his people if they confess their sins. Numbers 5 talks about the need for those who've sinned to confess their sin and make restitution. Matthew 5, Jesus tells us that if you're taking your sacrifice to worship and on the way remember that your brother has something against you, you're to go to him and make it right with your brother and then offer your sacrifice. Well, obviously that would entail a certain amount of confession. James says that if we are to confess our sins to one another, that we may be healed. And in John, it says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Clearly, confession of sin is a necessary component of repentance. It's something that leads to this. If we understand ourselves to be a sinner, we, under, we come under deep conviction of what, we is and what it is we've done and we need to change. One of the things that flows out of the heart is a confession of that reality. A manifestation of fruit that you see in repentance is a confession. But here's something else we have to note. It's confession to the right people. Because here's something that can, people can do. They don't mind confessing to somebody that they know will listen to them and give them a shoulder to cry on. But they don't confess to God, and they don't often confess to the right people. So to tell me that what you've done is wrong is one thing, because you think that you should tell me that. But go tell the person that you've wronged. You tell the person that you've wronged, you've looked them in the eyes, and you confess your sin to them, and look to them to forgive you. That's a different kind of confession, Confessing our sin is a necessary part. It brings healing, it brings cleansing, it brings restoration in so many cases. So confessing our sin to God because he's the one we always sin against is priority. Confessing our sin to the ones we've sinned against is absolutely essential. And perhaps even confessing to a trusted friend sometimes, letting them know what we've done so they might help us know what we ought to do next. Confession is essential in repentance, and there 's lots we could say about confession because confession you know can get out of hand in certain cases, can be wrongly performed in certain cases, but I think that we understand fundamentally that when we confess our sins we're saying we're declaring this I have sinned it is me I have done this and what I did was wrong and I ask you to forgive me I'm confessing who I'm beca- confessing my own understanding of myself I'm confessing what it is I've done and I'm confessing that it was wrong it was sinful it was evil I'm not making any excuses for it it's just flat out wrong Sometimes Confessions start out trying to say that, and they end up justifying oneself for why they did it. So they, And I've heard several people say, well, I confessed my sin. Well, I heard it. It wasn't really, it started off kind of confession. It ended up justification for why you did it. True confession has the heart attitude we just looked at. Owns it. Proper understanding oneself before God and a deep conviction that what you did was sinful. That can, if those preconditions aren't there, we just can't can fully confess and take full ownership. We're always looking to blame. We're always looking to shift guilt. We're always looking to tag others. We're always looking to say, "Yeah, but you did just as much. You're just as bad as I am." Those are false confessions. you want to look at a great confession, go read Psalm 51. David owns it, swallows it. It's me, oh God, me. A mark of biblical repentance is that kind of confession. And lastly, this is what, we, this is what you will see manifested in this biblical repentance. Making things right and changing conduct. When the people asked John in verse 10, What then shall we do? They were wanting to make things right. What do I need to do? They didn't want to keep on sinning. They wanted to do what was right. What should we do? In fact, in some of these cases, they don't know what they are to do within their corrupt environments, which they find themselves. The tax collectors, for example, in verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, What shall we do? Soldiers came to him. What should we do? We're in like a corrupt environment. (laughs) There's sinfulness and wickedness all around. What are we to do? What does repentance look like in this particular environment? He He tells them what to do. They knew that repentance didn't just require a confession, simply just confess. It required a turning, a change of action, a change of conduct. In some cases, it's not mentioned here in the text, if, we were, if there were specific people who had been wronged in specific ways, do you know what John would have told them? You need to go to them and you need to make it right. You need to make restitution. And how do we know this? Well, that's because that's what the Bible calls them to. In Numbers chapter 5, 6 and 7, this is what it says. Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sin that he has committed. It doesn't stop there. And he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it, and giving it to him whom he did the wrong. Do you know what that is? That's restitution. The restitution makes things right. It takes what was wronged and broken and busted and hurt and it makes things right. A way that the Bible actually uses the, the word atonement isn't always just in terms of blood sacrificial atonement to cover over our sin before God. It also uses it in ways to speak of atonement as a, like a covering that covers over sin between people. So atonement can be made through restitution. So that it feels like the sin is completely covered, completely taken over. It's, it's fully restored. Everything's back to normal. When you take and give back what's been taken and you add something to it, a fifth to it, like he says, God knows he made the world. It makes it right. It washes it away. It, it's a covering, like an atonement. Sometimes if we end at confession... And we don't make restitution, we cut the whole process short, and there's still animosity or brokenness or uh, strain on the relationship, even though it's been confessed. We live in an age where restitution isn't as much spoken of or talked of, but it's a huge component. If we want to understand a relationship being fully restored, we see a repentance that brings life, that brings resurrection. We need to get back this whole concept of making restitution. If someone's been wronged or hurt, to actually do something for them that goes above and beyond. It's not like, say, if I stole a dollar, I give a dollar back. No, you give a dollar back and throw another dollar on top of it. That's the restitution part. It restores. It makes things whole again. It actually can put that person back in favor with you. Make them actually pleased toward you. Toward you delighted toward you because you, you didn't just give it back. You added to it to make full restitution. You know, I found in counseling people about dealing with sin that these last two really are the difference makers that manifest what's happening in the heart. The first two things I talked about of is a deep understanding of who you are and a deep conviction of the sin and what you need to do. It's fundamental, but it's issues of the heart that you will see manifested in the last two, confession and restitution. Because you know what's, here's Here's the thing I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of tears, crying, weeping, remorseful, they can talk all the right talk. But when it comes to confessing sin to the appropriate people and making restitution to the appropriate people, everything changes. Excuse after excuse of why this can't happen. There's no, there's no true repentance. When a person is not willing to confess to the appropriate people and make restitution to the appropriate people. And here is why, because the first two are fundamental. And when they happen, the second two will happen naturally. And I've seen it without fail. Proper kinds of confession, proper kinds of restitution happen when someone truly sees themselves as they are before God and have a deep conviction over their sin and they don't care. You know, here's often the language. I don't care what I need to do to make it right. I want to make it right. You hear that language? You got someone that the "The Spirit of God has worked on their heart and broken them and has brought them under a conviction of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment and is leading them Repentance. You might see all kinds of remorse. You might see all kinds of fear. You might see all kinds of crocodile tears. There can be sometimes all kinds of confession to all the wrong people. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. Confession and restitution to the uh, uh, the offended parties is a fundamental requirement in true biblical repentance. The first two I I talked about, they deal with the root. The second two I talked about, they deal with the fruit. And if you don't have the root, you're not going to have the fruit. That's how it works. And if you don't see the fruit, understand that the root is not there. And at that point, all you can do, even in your own life or in others, is pray that God would have mercy. Pray that God would help you or them to understand, to see themselves as they truly are before God, that they would become under deep conviction, and as they're led to confess and make restitution, you will see beautiful resurrection fruit come out of sin and destruction. Do you realize that relationships that go through the repentance process can be stronger, better, and healthier than they were before? And how did that It come through death? It came through sin. It came through destruction. It came through some of those horrible circumstances. And I don't care how bad of things have taken place. It doesn't matter what wickedness someone has done. It doesn't matter how broken you think a relationship is. Do you want to see a miracle upon all miracles? You watch God move in by the Spirit and bring someone under conviction of sin and bring them to a deep understanding of who they are before God and see themselves as a sinner, and that person is humbled, and they go and confess their sins and make restitution, and that's that's received. You want to see Renewal? You want to see resurrection life? You want to see a a miracle of God? You will witness it before your very eyes. Don't ever think that something's too broken. Don't ever think that something's too much of a disaster, too much of a mess. It never is because God is the God who takes that stuff and brings life out of death. This is why flowers grow out of manure piles. Because God is the God who can do that stuff. And he loves to. So that kind of repentance is beautiful. And when we think in terms of dealing with people with that paradigm, we know how to lead them, and we also know how to walk ourselves out of sin to make things beautiful. Repentance is beautiful. Amen.